special girl you know what screw it if i don't do something with this if i don't just get started and figure this thing out i'm never going to do anything that I, I i set my mind to my big piece of advice figure it out just make it happen as nike would say just do it What do you do today and what's your general background? Yeah, you know, I started my career in advertising. Mm-hmm. That's really what I wanted to be when I grew up, so to speak. It was an ad guy that sort of evolved over the years, but it's always kind of stuck in the back of my mind and really has kind of directed the path of my career in terms of marketing. I think early on, I decided that in order to get sales, it's a lot easier when people come to you versus when you're trying to convince them. So marketing was always a natural thing for me. It's like, ah, I like it better when people come and knock on my door or or vice versa. And so that's kind of what led me in the direction of like lead gen, growth, you know, some of those things. You know, about six years ago, I had an idea for a company called Wahooli. And essentially what it was is an equity exchange. So in exchange for the influence that you bring to the table, a startup would give you a small percentage of equity in exchange for how impactful you are toward their brand. And so that was really kind of my first start into tech-based startups. Kind of wish I would have started sooner because I got hooked ever since then. Wahooli ended up last, you know, the two years or so, raised, you know, a decent amount of money, a seed round. We went into an accelerator called AngelPad out of San Francisco. And ultimately that shut down. About a year later, I was able to salvage some of that and merge it with a company called Loot, which is a sort of an incentive-based app for influencers. So it was very similar in the space, except there wasn't any equity involved as compensation. That was in San Francisco. I mean, where are you at today and how'd you get over there? Yeah, that was interesting. So I'm based in Minnesota. So when we started Wahooli, there was four of us and we were actually all distributed. One of the founders was in Chicago and then the two other founders were in Austin, Texas, and then I was in Minneapolis. And so we ended up basing our company out of Austin, Texas, just because the talent's better there. And so we thought we'd have a better chance at hiring down there. So I would already commute down to Texas quite a bit. So when we got into AngelPad, we felt it was important to have, obviously, a presence in San Francisco, given the space that we're in. And we had a really close alignment with Clout, which was really at that time, 2013-ish, at the height of its popularity. And so, yeah, what I would do, because I'm an older founder with children, You know, I have three kids and a wife. So I would commute every week. I would fly down to San Francisco on Sunday night. We had an apartment that we rented for an ungodly amount of money. It was like 3,200 bucks for a one bedroom apartment. Yeah, I'd fly down there every Sunday night. And then every Thursday night, I'd fly back to Minneapolis and I'd spend the weekend at home and then go back. So I did that for about four months, but it worked. So I guess when you were closing, getting rid of that and going into Loot, was Loot still in San Francisco as well? No, they were actually based out of Orlando at the time. So I've always been distributed, it feels like. You know, there isn't a lot of activity that happens in in Minnesota, for one. 
two, I'm in like a far out Western suburb of Minneapolis. And so, in fact, there was a guy that had reached out to me that wanted just some advisement and he was willing to come out my way. And so, you know, it took him an hour to get out here. We met up at like Caribou Coffee and he's like, I cannot believe there's somebody that has, knows about startups that lives way out here. Right. You know, it's just the circles that I walk in out here in St. Michael are so much different than in my day to day. They really don't have any idea what I do. <laughs> I guess going from Loot, do you want to, I guess, bring us up to today then? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I was at Loot for about a year. And then after that, I decided, well, I should say in between there, in between Wahooli and Loot, I started a couple companies. The first one is a site called StartupsAnonymous.com, which is still running today. And Startups Anonymous is basically a place for founders to be able to share their stories, ask questions, maybe even just confess something without the fear of retribution. So it's in a completely anonymous site for founders where they can ask questions openly and you get answers back from people that are also anonymous so they can be forthright and they can offer their story. So I did that because Wahooli went down. I really had a lot of sort of emotions with it. And so it was something I wanted to talk about, but I didn't necessarily want to write publicly. And so I had been looking for a venue to really share those stories, ask questions. There were some questions that I didn't even know about shutting down a company. And I felt like I probably should have known. And that was a good venue for me to be able to sort of ask those things without you know disclosing myself. So yeah, so I started that and that took off. Pretty quickly. I obviously didn't want to be the only one asking questions and sharing stories because then it would be pretty obvious that it was me doing that. So, you know, I spent the first few months of Startups Anonymous really just generating interest and getting people to share their stuff, doing just cold outreach. Yeah. Could you give us some examples of that? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it helps having a network with AngelPad. And so that was one of the resources that I, I turned to. There's a lot of founders there. Many of them have gone through shutting down a company. Many of them have stories that they haven't shared. And so I reached out to that network, you know, asking people to submit things, asking people to ask questions, getting them involved. I literally had a network of people that have reached out to me over the years asking me questions or asking for advice or what have you. And I compiled all those people, reached out to them, told them, you know, what I was building and asked them to, you know, start populating. And then I'd also just look for anonymous stories that have been shared elsewhere. And I would post them on the site and then give credit back to the other site. So I would sort of populate early on, I populated some of that content through some of those methods. But one of the things that I did pretty early, just to get some attention and credibility built for it is I reached out to Pando Daily, or it's I think it's just referred to as Pando now, which is run by two former TechCrunch writers. Uh, Sarah Lacey is the head editor-in-chief. And so I created a pitched a series called Startups Anonymous, which is basically any of these stories that get shared anonymously on Startups Anonymous would be syndicated or written first on Pando. And so it gave founders an opportunity to have like a bigger stage for their stories to be shared. It wasn't a guarantee that it would make it on there, but it got the quality of submissions to really increase just by having that one alignment. And then also on the flip side of that, I was able to tap into, tap into Pando's network to drive people back to Startups Anonymous on a weekly basis. So it was a really good sort of partnership there. That was one of the companies that you said you started and then a couple others? Well, the other big one is Stick in a Box, which is a gourmet beef jerky subscription. So basically what I do, it's quite simple. It's a subscription box, which many people are familiar with. So on a monthly basis, I go and find sort of the best 
tasting the best flavors of beef jerky from small batch makers across the U.S. And then I ship the subscribers each month. So these are, I call it the anti-jack links. So anything that you'd find at a convenience store, generally speaking, you're not going to find in Stick and Bucks. So I've been doing that for about two and a half years now. And the interesting thing about that is most people don't realize this, is how much beef jerky is being made out there. In the two and a half years that I've been doing this, I've never once doubled or put the same product in a box on any given month. And every single month, I send out anywhere between five to seven products in each box. So there is a lot of product out there. And how'd you decide to get into that? Like I said, I guess you were still, just so we kind of close the door on the other company with Loot. So at the end of Loot, you're closing this down. You started these two, we're saying. And was there a third one as well or no? Uh, no, no, okay. no, no, okay. no gotcha. those are the two. Okay, yeah. so you started these two. Can you tell us about the transition? Like, I didn't know if everything closed down at Loot and you're like, hey, I'm done. And then you just started sticking a box or if it was like a month or two layover or kind of how that worked. No, actually, yeah. Startups Anonymous and Stick in a Box actually came before Loot. Okay, gotcha. So for about a year after Wahooli shut down, I had all these sort of assets of Wahooli. Mainly, there was a really big community that stayed active in it. It was crazy because it kind of created a, a community of their own. Wahooli was a, a concept that a lot of people rallied around. And just to give you a, a quick background, this is how quickly this company came together. Um, in September of 2012... I created a landing page that basically described what we were going to do. And the way I described it was it's Shark Tank meets Kickstarter meets uh, meets Cloud. And so it was those three things that kind of came together. Um, Shark Tank was just, you know, on the air, I think, starting out. So people were interested in that. Kickstarter was at the height of its popularity and Cloud was as well. And so those three things combined were like, oh, that's a really interesting formula. And nobody else was doing this at the time, which is taking, let's just say, 4% equity in a company and then making that into a pie and then giving up to 5,000 people the opportunity to be part of that pie. So it was a pretty novel concept. And really, that landing page led to a lot of press. I mean, it took some effort to get that press. But you know, we were in Thrillist to begin with, then Business Insider, and then TechCrunch, and then Mashable, USA Today. And... NPR. I mean, it, it just it kind of snowballed from there. Through all that, we got into a partnership with Cloud, and we basically limited the people that could sign up to Wahooli based upon Cloud Score. So you had to be in the top ten percent of Cloud Scores to actually qualify to be part of Wahooli, which created this really interesting dynamic. And so these people that joined were really they're outspoken people obviously because they're with high cloud scores became you know you're you're naturally going to be people that are active on social and so they really rallied behind it and they created these groups i mean they bought up every single wahooli based domain that you could possibly imagine you know it was and then they formed a group called wahooligans they created facebook pages they created a wikipedia page for us they they really rallied together and so i reached out to them quite a bit and i cultivated that community and one of the things that I did once Wahooli was close to shutting down is I said, well, what do you guys want to see happen? Like, should we make this a community-based company? Like, we all own it? Or should we... Is there another direction that you guys would suggest? And so I got a lot of feedback on that. 
And one of them, it was still leveraging their influence for good. And so that's how sort of the loot thing came together because I had been looking for a way to match this audience that I had, this group of 30,000 plus people that wanted to participate in something with another company. And so that took me about a year to identify the right company to do it with. Becoming a patron was something that I was always like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And I was delaying it for whatever reason. And the other day I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, uh, and that's it. So I'm very happy with it. Nice. Well, thank you for joining. So was there anything holding you back? It was just uh, taking the time to do it. Gotcha. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it. So um, where are you located? Here in Bolivia, in South America. Cool. Well, I think you're our first Patreon member from South America. So thanks for that again. And um, I don't know if you just saw, I just upped the group calls from once a month to twice a month. So I think that's actually where probably you'll get the most value of the membership personally. Doing the group calls, you guys get to actually, you know, ask our past guests questions and I'm just there to facilitate it. Hopefully that helps. I feel like I came at least a little bit more helpful at the end there. No, I, I do. I think it helps. And like I said, it's like, going to see a psychiatrist talking about your problems in life you're like we're talking with you about our <laughs> problems in business and startups so i mean when we vocalize and we talk something else will enter our brains and and we're like okay yeah there it is nice well i appreciate it dr rock well then um let's go ahead and i guess talk a little bit more about the uh, startups and eyes and stick in a box i don't know if you want to talk about one versus the other or, or what exactly help our audience a little bit yeah well we can move on to, to stick in a box i think startups anonymous is you know, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, Stick in a Box started, I was at a trade show just randomly in Chicago. And I came across this booth that was selling, or actually they were just giving out samples of this jerky that they were making. And it literally stopped me in my tracks when I took a bite out of it. It was unlike anything I've ever had. And really, you know, I'm not some sort of connoisseur of beef jerky or anything like that. Up to that point, I just I was a normal average consumer that would go into a gas station and buy a bag of Alberto or Jack Links, you know, and so that was my basic understanding of beef jerky at the time. And so when I tasted this, I'm like, oh my God, there's things that are, you know, it's like the filet mignon of, of beef jerky. And I had no idea something like that even existed. And so I really didn't think about it much after that. I knew that I loved the product. I came back home a couple of weeks later. I was thinking about that beef jerky again. I went online and I couldn't get it. It was only distributed through stores and it was only distributed locally. So really, it wasn't in my area. And so it obviously, with an entrepreneur mind, I go, okay, how am I going to get my hands on this stuff? And what can I do with this? Because other people need to have this. I don't have a retail store, so I can't sell it. So I started thinking about it. And I, I did a little bit of research online. And one of the things that I did is I just basically looked to see how many times this product was being mentioned on Twitter. The product itself wasn't being mentioned much, but the topic of beef jerky was being mentioned constantly. And so I literally could see that almost every minute of every day, somebody is confessing their love for beef jerky. It's just one of those affinity type sort of products. It's like chocolate, you know? And so I just looked around and saw, you know, who's selling what, what stores online are available, you know, what's the market look like for this aside from just convenience stores? You know, come to find out, there really wasn't much in the way of any offerings. And this wasn't that long ago. It was two and a half years ago. I had just recently listened to a podcast about somebody that had just started a subscription box. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting idea, you know, because I could get product maybe for free and then resell it to consumers, which was like the birch box sort of model of doing sampling. 
So, you know, over the course of about a week, I spent about $100 in total to get the entire site up and running. I used Shopify to, to pull things together, you know, did the logo myself. I hired out a couple images to have done. Um, really didn't know what I was getting myself into. I just knew that if I could reach out to enough beef jerky manufacturers, have them send me samples, and then, you know, figure out some sort of price point that it probably could work. And so one thing that I did, and I mentioned this on Mixergy as well, is I didn't know the first thing about subscription-based boxes. So I didn't know, you know, like, where's the best place to get your boxes? What's the best way to, to do shipping? You know, how do you do the labels? Do you fulfillment in-house? Do you do it out? And so instead of trying to just learn all that stuff on my own the hard way, I recruited other subscription box founders into a group. I started a group on Facebook just for subscription box founders. And I did cold outreach. I just looked for other companies that were not selling the same thing I was, and they weren't selling the same thing that the other people I was reaching out to were. So it was a big non-competitive group, you know, kind of basically people that are just starting out. I mean, I did reach out to some of the bigger ones too, like the Birch Boxes of the World and the Dollar Shave Club. And it's like, you know, try to get those people involved. But what I found was that, you know, the people that were in a similar boat to me, they're just learning too. And so we just came together and started sharing our information. You know, we able to find out where where we all buy boxes at, you know, the platforms that we're using, the tools that we're using, the price points, you know, like what you're paying for product on a per box basis. Um, it was really, really helpful to go in, you know, and take that step. And so that's basically how it got started. The early days of of stick in a box for the first couple months, I was literally just relying on samples being sent to me from beef jerky makers. And I would use those samples to to fill fill the boxes and yeah it's grown ever since so how'd you get the idea of that i think that was really smart to reach out to those people and kind of start a facebook group have you done something similar like that before no but i can tell you this is one thing that i looked back on in my in my career is that i've always gone to places that i'll just give you an example of this so back in college i wanted to start a pool cleaning business i had no idea why i just thought it would be fun to get a jeep you know i just imagined this sort of whole process and i didn't know the first thing about cleaning pools and so what i did is i went and got a job at a pool store you know and i did it for a summer so i could learn everything i needed to about doing pools i never ended up starting the pool cleaning business but i ended up <laughs> enjoying the pool business did that in college a little bit later in my career i wanted to start an ad agency at some point. I knew that I wanted to, but I really didn't know anything about starting an ad agency. So I went and got a job at an agency so I could learn sort of the ropes of doing that. Similar story. I was getting into real estate investing several years back. I thought, you know, it'd be great to have a free magazine that has just investment property opportunities that would be get circulated just locally within stores. And I don't know if you remember, but about 10 years ago, or maybe even Earlier than that, they used to have these real estate magazines that they would put out like encounters at stores that you'd walk into and it would just have all these home listings. This is kind of pre, pre-internet pre yeah. purchasing. They have them for cars still if you go into those convenience stores. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Auto Trader used to yeah. make something similar. Yeah, something like that. So I wanted to do that for real estate investing. But, you know, again, the theme of my life is I didn't know anything about starting a magazine, you know, or doing any of those things. And so what I did is I went and got a job at a magazine for a little while. Ended up starting that magazine as a result of learning, you know, about pagination, about printing, about, you know, getting things laid out, about the cost structure and how to make it profitable, those sorts of things. So 
it's not all that dissimilar from things I've done in the past in order to learn what I need to, to go and start something, or at least for me to feel comfortable enough to go and start something. And that's kind of been the path that I've taken. Obviously, I didn't get a job at a subscription box this time. I, I went a different route, but it's sort of the same thing. Yeah. No, I mean, reaching out, trying to figure it out through experts who are already in the field. Like I said, I think it was, it was really smart too to make sure there weren't someone in who was doing beef jerky boxing that was in your group, for instance, where they might give you the wrong information yeah. by quote unquote accident. So. And that was important for the other people I invited too. Yeah. And when I reached out to them and, you know, got this group started, I made sure that that was one of the first things I told them is that, you know, there's not going to be anybody competitive to you in this space. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I could see any of our listeners, like if they're thinking about starting a certain company doing some very similar, if you're trying to sell shoes online, you know, you're not going to go try to get Zappers and Tony Shea on there, but maybe you get people who sell socks online or something not maybe not even that closely related where they can learn from that. So. Could you tell us a little bit more about like maybe the ups and downs as far as with stick in a box and kind of, you know, at first when you were getting those trials, could you tell us about your first customer and were you shipping those out yourself? I was shipping them out myself. Yeah. I was actually handwriting the labels. It was a real pain in the butt. So I didn't really have boxes at that point yet. I didn't have anything. So basically what I did is I used sticker mule to give them a plug, but and I still use them to this day to get my stickers. But yeah, I created some stickers with my logo on it. I went to Office Depot to buy some boxes because the subscription quantity was, I think my first month, if I remember correctly, I would have to look back, but I think it was like 30 subscribers. Up to that point, there was a two month lead time before I started shipping boxes. In terms of how I got those first subscribers, I'm going to think about this for a minute, but I think honestly, there was no ad spend. One of the things that I wanted to do was create stick in a box as like a marketing sandbox for me, just experiment with different, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But it's always been kind of fun to create an alter ego with it and do things that kind of push the envelope a little bit, which is what I've been doing since day one. But those early subscribers, I'm guessing that it was just pure hustle. If I'm thinking back on it, I don't think there was anything significant that happened to get those first initial 30 subscribers other than just outreach, which would be within my network. One of the hidden gems, I think, on Facebook are these local community sites. And I can just tell you, like, within our area in Minnesota, our local community site has got 10,000 members in it. And they all support local businesses, you know. And I'm assuming this is similar to any other market in the United States. But I've leveraged that several times just to say, hey, I'm a local business, um, even though I'm online. You know, I've got this Father's Day deal or I've got this Christmas special. And I know that I leveraged that early on too to get some early subscribers. And the nice thing about that, if you're shipping products, is that if you're using zone pricing for postage, it's a lot cheaper when you ship within your own state. So that's an extra bonus. Thanks for the tips. Yeah. Yeah. So then uh, like I knew you're, you said you're going to, um, I guess, jump into it a little bit more into that. But how many subscribers are you at today? Just so we have an idea of where you started at and where you're at today. Yeah. So we're just over 500 right now. It's a side gig. As full-time, and I haven't talked about this yet, but full-time, I'm the head of marketing for a company called Promoter.io, which is a MPS or Net Promoter Score software SaaS company. So Stick in a Box has always kind of been a side gig for me. It's, it's sort of therapeutic and it's fun. And like I mentioned, it's it's a marketing sandbox. So I spend very little on actual outbound marketing dollars. So I don't do any Google AdWords. I don't do any Facebook ads. To a large degree, sometimes I'll boost some stuff. But other than that, I don't spend a penny on it. 
So everything I do is intended to be organic. And so I'll give you an example of that. About six months ago, I started this sort of idea of referencing Stick in a Box as Ashley Madison for Vegans. And you're familiar with Ashley Madison? No, yeah. Could you tell the subscribers that Ashley Madison? Yeah, yeah. So Ashley Madison is a site for married people um, where they can go to find other married people that are looking to hook up on the side. So it's a site for cheating, basically. And, you know, it made the headlines a couple of years ago when their entire site got breached and they released every member's name on the site. And then people created like search databases so you could find out if your spouse was using it. Yeah. So at the time that it happened, I, I don't know if I thought about it then, but it occurred to me, it's like, okay, that's kind of what we do for vegans. Like if a vegan wanted to cheat, they would subscribe to us and we could send it discreetly. I'm like, oh, that's kind of funny. Let's see if let's see if there's any you know interest in this. So I posted it on Twitter and really nobody responded because we don't have a big audience on Twitter, you know, engaging there. But um, I ended up going through with this because I just felt strongly in the idea. So what I did is I so Ashley Madison has like this defining image of this woman that's she basically you can't see anything, but it it, it appears as if she's like standing there naked. It's kind of from the top or the underneath her neck up and she's got her finger up to her mouth and she's saying like, shh. And so what I did instead is I had a image created of a woman like standing very similar to that, but instead of her finger being held up, it's a beef stick that's being held up in front of her mouth. Right. And so I created this tagline saying it's okay to cheat with me and then created an ad for that. And then I targeted vegans just because I knew that they would be in an uproar. And so that is an area that I spent a little bit of money on, on both Facebook and on Reddit, targeting vegans. Reddit actually shut me down because they knew that what I was doing was just trolling. So the actual ad, and, and maybe, you know, you can link to it if there is a spot to link to. There will be in the show notes. And I'm, I'm looking at it right now on your website. Uh, the oh, yeah. That's, that's the other thing. Is I created a landing page for this, like a vegan landing page. You know, it's all tongue in cheek. But the thing about like the stick in a box brand is that it's beef jerky with an attitude. And so I've always been able to create this alter ego of somebody that, you know, is just sort of hard nosed. Uh, He toes the line with being appropriate and not being appropriate. And it really fits sort of the profile of my customer, which is why it works. You know, people that eat beef jerky kind of fit into the stereotype. They like the innuendo jokes. They, you know, they kind of find it funny that that's just the type of customer that I have. Right. And on the opposite end of that, you got vegans who are very passionate as well. And they're very passionate about their lifestyle. And they seem to unite with each other. And they really seem to get up in arms about people eating meat. And so I thought, all right, so I got two passionate audiences here, one that loves beef jerky, the other one that just can't stand anything meat related. What if I could somehow get them to start arguing, you know, and do it over on my brand? So the whole intention of this vegan campaign wasn't obviously to convert any vegans. I'm not that naive to believe that that's that's (laughs) true. You have that power. (laughs) Yeah. It was actually just to create an uproar and start a discussion and get people talking about it and get media attention. And so this is actually still underway. But I have, you know, Food Beast was the first article that has come out as a result of it. I'm actually talking to uh, Entrepreneur Magazine right now about another story (laughs) as a result. So there's a new variation of the campaign that's coming out that is going to be male oriented. But yeah, it's 
it's really been fun doing this and the results are great. So, you know, naturally what I wanted was people that look at that campaign from a meat eater standpoint and go, Oh, I like this simply because this company is willing to do this sort of thing. Um, and I can rally behind that. Ultimately it just comes into it. It's a numbers game. The more people that comment on my Facebook post about it, the more people I'm reaching. I actually got surprisingly when I did the Reddit campaign, which was super cheap. I ended up getting two people and I wasn't even cross-targeting. So the approach that I took was I was going to target vegans first and then get vegans to start offering whatever words they wanted to offer. And then I was going to target meat eaters following that so that they can get involved in that discussion, right? So sort of built up the narrative that way. The actual step of getting the beef eaters involved in the Facebook side is yet to come. So that's sort of my next step within there. But the ads that I ran on Reddit actually got me subscribers, which was kind of crazy because I just didn't even think that was going to happen because I only exclusively targeted vegans. I don't know if there are a few vegans that are just within those subreddits for the... Who knows? I have no idea. So is a stick in the box a play on a dick in the box? Take a look inside. Is my dick in a box? It's in a box. Yeah. Because I think your stuff's funny. Like it's subtle. So are you today uh, still shipping all those boxes yourself? Or can you tell us how over the years, I guess it's evolved. But at first, was it like you're all in and you're slowly taking yourself out? And then you can discuss, I guess, about Promoter IO and what you do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll be honest. Like my ultimate goal, it's it's not really a lifestyle business for me. It's something that I, I will eventually sell. But I, I still haven't hit all my goals with it yet. It's more of the little company that I get to dream about and do little things with that are fun. So. Like, for example, the whole stick in a box thing uh, or the connection to dick in a box. So one thing that's coming up right now is I'm working on a box design right now that's going to include a perforated hole in the back as the quote unquote meat access hole. So, you know, to play off that theme just a little bit more, you can pull the meat out of the box and then do with the box what you will. There, I've done a few like shows where like bike rallies and tailgating events, things of that nature. And so one of my plans is to have a cutout where it's this sort of like big, beefy looking guy. And you basically stand behind it, you take a picture, but the big, beefy guy's got like a shirt on that says, I've just got my stick in a box. And the box is sort of being held at waist, right? So people can take pictures with it. The other thing that I'm working towards is a mobile man cave. So, you know, I'm basically calling it wheel tail, which is if you imagine like a FedEx truck completely gutted out, but that it has hardwood floors in there. It has like a flat screen TV, like a kegmeister, a little basketball court area, basically a man cave on wheels that I would be bringing to tailgating events, different shows of things, things of that nature and selling stick in a box out of that. There are like these things that I want to accomplish before I ended up selling it. But yeah, it's just sort of a slow growth type thing that I'm working towards. All fulfillment is still done in-house. I'm pretty much at that tipping point right now where I probably should outsource it because it is pretty time intensive to get those things ready to go and out the door. But I do have, surprisingly, I have uh, I have twin 10-year-old boys and they love packing jerky boxes with me. So right now I have like a crew of helpers that, that go at it with me. And it's nice to keep that margin that I would have been spending for fulfillment. Yeah. So 
So I guess during this point, like I said, you figured you had to pick up a full-time job as well, to, and this is kind of your side hustle. I mean, what made you do that? Were you initially, like I said, all in on sticking a box, and you kind of knew eventually it was going to be your side? Or tell us a little bit about Promoter.io and what you do. Yeah, I mean, I've taken stick in a box seriously, but not to the point where I've really invested 100% of my effort into it. Right. You know, honestly, if there's a month that goes by that I'm not putting in time into stick in a box, it shows in the numbers, right? And so I know that if I were to put a full-time effort into it, I could probably do it a lot quicker, but it's not 100% fulfilling for me. So what I had been doing with stick in a box after loot, when I, I was consulting... I write quite a bit. So I write Brink Magazine as well. Uh, I write a lot on LinkedIn as well. Um, and so those sources have actually been really good lead sources for me in terms of sticking a box, in terms of my full-time gig with Promoter. But I was kind of looking to sort of scale back all the consulting that I was doing and just focus in on one product, one company. And I wanted to be exclusively on marketing. And so it's something that I hadn't done for a long time because I had been involved in every aspect of the business for quite some time, including fundraising, which I got completely burnt out on, you know, the financial sides of things. I just, there's certain aspects as an entrepreneur that you just can't stand. And it felt good to me to go all out and just say, look, I'm just going to focus on marketing and I'm going to do it for one product and one company. And that was sort of my desire at that point in time was to go and do that. And so I spent about three months talking to companies, looking at different products, and I ended up landing at Promoter, which is based in San Antonio. So yet again, a remote person. But I really like the net promoter space. It's very close to sort of the influencer space, only with your customers. So the whole sort of objective of using net promoter is identifying who are your biggest advocates within your customer base. And then leveraging those advocates for growth. Most companies don't realize that between 50 to 80%, depending on what type of business you are, of your revenue comes directly from your customers. They're the ones that drive the most through referrals, through word of mouth, through positive word of mouth. And so of that 50% that's driving that revenue, of the advocates, I'm sorry, that are driving 50% of the revenue, that's only about 20% of those that are willing meaning that there are all these advocates, people that love your product, love your brand, are willing to you know refer new customers your way, willing to give you a review online, willing to share you socially. There's a variety of different ways that they can do this. But there's a whole handful of people within any company's customer base that just are sitting on the sidelines because they don't know what to do, but they're willing. And so what Net Promoter does is it helps you identify who those 80% are and you know put them to work. And so it's it's a huge you know, profit center for a company if, if leveraged correctly. And what's interesting about the space is that even though it was created or started in, you know, early 2000s, it was only up until about two years ago that it was only used by enterprise level companies like Southwest Airlines, USAA, Apple, you know, there really wasn't a self-service tool that you could go and you could just start as a, I don't know, you know, a company that has 100 customers. Promoter was the first tool that came out that offered a self-service option. And so this is, they call it, and I don't know if I can swear on this, but in, in AngelPad, uh, we always talked about shit rising markets. MPS is a shit rising market. There's a huge opportunity for growth in there. And so that's what kind of excited me about Promoter. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, can we talk a little bit about like 
You being a remote worker, because imagine some of our listeners are kind of could be remote workers, work from home. And I mean, have you had any challenges with that and kind of what's your day to day to make sure you stayed productive? Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah. I mean, one of the disadvantages of being at home is that it's never really off. Um, I do have kids, so kid activities really do help. You know, they're in sports. And so I do sort of end my day, my work day at five uh, and go spend time with family. But nine times out of 10, you know, after they're in bed at nine, nine thirty ish, I'm back on my computer. So the day is sort of always on. The disadvantage really is I crave that team time. So I go down to San Antonio probably every five, six weeks, which is great. Um, I'll spend a week, week and a half down there. And we end up getting a lot, a lot accomplished in, the, in those times, but it's really helpful to have that team time. And so I just can't commit to moving to San Antonio right now. But yeah, that's, that's sort of like the disadvantage for me. The advantage is that I can basically walk down the steps in my pajamas and be in my pajamas all day and work work from my office. I enjoy that. I enjoy not having a commute. I enjoy you know, being able to jump really quickly into things. Discipline is important. I've had to work on that over the years, but I've been doing it for so long now that it's kind of second nature. Could you tell us like how you've been able to do that? Because that's what I want to jump into a little bit. Yeah, the discipline side. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How are you able to do that? You know, I think there's going to be more and more of the workforce is going to start working from home. And everyone always thinks it's awesome. Like I said, I work from home. I've been doing it for like four years and kind of had that discipline at first, but sometimes it gets tiring. And like I said, just tr- any hurdles and how you've been able to stay disciplined, like you were saying. Yeah. My job is work, right? It's whether it's, you know, stick in a box or promoter. My wife stays home full time with the kids. So that's really helped in terms of being able to keep the distractions to a minimum in terms of the kids coming in or interrupting. And they know that when my office door is shut, that they're not supposed to come in. You know, they'll knock every so often. Other than going out for a run or having lunch, I literally don't leave my office. And so that's helped me as well, not just going up randomly to grab a snack or things of that nature. And keeping my hours at a normal sort of, like I said, I shut down at five o'clock. So that's really helped me to know what my limitation is, because if if it wasn't there, I'd probably just keep going, to be honest. And I would just work right through it. I also have a start time, you know, every morning. So I allow myself some time in the morning with my kids. I don't touch my phone. I don't look at it. I don't do any of those things until it's sort of time to go down, which is 830. And so once that starts, then, you know, that's my work day. And I just have to mentally keep it that way. Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which... I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. And so kind of in wrapping up, what advice, I guess, would you have for would-be or want-to-be entrepreneurs and and what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview? Yeah, for sure. Well, first off, my email address is danaseverson at gmail.com. So pretty easy to reach out. You can also reach out to me through Stick in a Box's website. There's a contact form on there. 
It's actually got my number listed. So if anybody wants to give me a call, I put it on there for a reason. Uh, I will answer it and chat with you. In, in terms of advice, I think the biggest thing for me has always been just actually moving forward with something. Um, so many people sit on ideas. They talk about ideas. They overanalyze the ideas. They, they push it off till the next day. The biggest thing and difference for me was actually just doing something. That's how Wahooli literally started because I had been, I'm the guy that has an idea every single day, right? And it, it's always something new. It always seems super interesting as soon as that idea comes in. And there was a point in time I was like, you know what? Screw it. I was working full time when I started Wahooli. And I just decided, look, this is, if I don't do something with this, if I don't just get started and figure this thing out, I'm never going to do anything that I, I set my mind to. And so my biggest piece of advice is figure it out. Just make it happen. As Nike would say, just do it. Well, again, like I said, well, thank you for your story and all the advice. And we really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you, Austin. All right. Thanks. Have a good one. All right. Thanks. Bye. If you think this episode could help inspire a friend or family member, then please pass it on. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might like Patreon episode number three, where I talked with Rick Martinez about how to get funding and be successful in the cannabis industry. Or try Patreon episode number five, where I talk with U.S. Army veteran Jeff Palmero about how he is able to grow a successful software business after fighting in Iraq. And last but not least, try Patreon episode number six, where I dive further in detail with Chad Patel on how to quickly build a successful mobile app without breaking the bank.